So we've, we've been on a small diversion from the book of James, uh, our series Life Authentic, which we've been kind of unpacking James verse by verse by verse. We've been on a small kind of diversion. We did something right before we left for Guatemala, and then Burke Lewis came in and preached last week while we were out of the country, and now it's Palm Sunday and Easter, and so we're still going to stay on an extended diversion. But don't worry, we're going to get back in there. We're going to finish it all up right after Easter. We're going to get back into the book of James. But these are such significant days in history, Palm Sunday and Easter, that they really deserve us taking a close look at the life of Christ. And I just think that these moments are really important because when we unpack the life of Jesus, when we really get into Scripture and we look at the life of Christ and we recognize who we are in comparison to all that God has done for us, I mean, it blows me away. And I'm just really excited this morning that I get to talk about Jesus because nothing makes me more motivated than the fact that I get to stand up and talk about the God that has redeemed my life, that the garbage that I was, God has set me free to the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, there is nothing better than to do, stand up and talk about how Jesus has set us free. And Palm Sunday is such a massive day in history because it marks such an an incredible entry point into Holy Week. This week in the life of Jesus, and it's a week that a lot of us take for granted. There's a lot of things that we do culturally that kind of cover up Easter in terms of first spring and bunnies and, 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 and eggs and all those things. Those things aren't bad. I mean, they're not evil by any means. But when you really think about the things that have unfolded over this course of this week in history and the things that we kind of use to cover them up by accident, it's, it's almost one of those things we have to step back and say, okay, culture, I'm going to take a, a step back for just a minute and I'm going to open my Bible on my own and I'm going to examine the last part of the book of Matthew or, or John and I want to look at what Jesus has done for me and what he walks through in these five days is, I mean, it's just amazing. It's amazing stuff. And so this morning what I thought we'd do is, is we're going to unpack Palm Sunday. I mean, we always kind of do, but we're going to unpack it a little bit. And, and then I want to take a close look at an encounter that happens on this day in the life of Jesus that we pay almost zero attention to. Because of all the pageantry and stuff that's happening through this entry into town and, and, and this sort of riding into Jerusalem that Jesus does on the back of this donkey, we miss an encounter that takes place some eight hours earlier in the very beginning of that morning, that I think define the life of Christ and really define who we're going to be as followers of Jesus or who we're called to be. So we're going to take a little bit of a glance at Palm Sunday through that lens this morning. So we're going to be in the book of Matthew chapter 20, 21-ish. Um, and so if you've got a Bible and you want to find it, we'll be uh, kind of visiting it there and I'll, I'll point out to you when you need to get there. But let me give you a, kind of a snapshot of where we are in history. Um, at this point in time, Palm Sunday, Jesus sort of last seven days uh, really on earth, or five days on earth, and then his crucifixion, and, and ultimately we celebrate Easter as Jesus' resurrection. Let me give you a picture of, of what's going on in history so that you can really understand the magnitude of the things that are unfolding. Jerusalem at the time, today, Palm Sunday, some 2,000 years ago, is absolutely a buzz. There were two pilgrimage holidays for the Israelite people, and Passover was the big one. Pilgrimage holidays were, were days when the scattered Israelites, the people of God, would pilgrim literally to Jerusalem to worship. The biggest of these was Passover. They would make pilgrimage with their families all the way to Jerusalem, and they were scattered all over the area, and these are long walks by foot, but they would make a pilgrimage once or maybe twice a year, but for sure for Passover, all the way to Jerusalem, and they would, they would really remember God's deliverance from the Egyptians. I mean, that's what Passover was. If you remember your Old Testament and all that was going on in Exodus and, and all those kind of things and, and how God was moving and how he delivered the people 
from the hands of the Egyptians. That's really what the Passover is signifying. It's reminding the people that God is their deliverer. So they, they come together and they celebrate God's deliverance from the Egyptians. And they do two really important things. One, they make a sacrifice. Uh, well, they celebrate a meal. And then two, they make a sacrifice for their sins and the sins of their family. And they do that with an unblemished lamb. So they buy a lamb or they bring a lamb that is without fault or defect and they, they bring it to the temple and the priests sacrifice it and that was the cleansing of your, your sins and your family's sins. So these are huge days. They're huge holy days in the life of Israel and the town, ta- in, in the life of Jerusalem. The town is packed with people. I mean, it's a small city and it's fortified with walls and people are coming from all over the region and they are packing into this place. I mean, it is... It is a big deal, and people are everywhere, and vendors are everywhere, and they're selling things, and it's just a massive holiday, and the streets are packed, and, it, and things are abuzz. And so when we think about Palm Sunday, we have to understand that Jesus and his disciples are making the same pilgrimage that the other Israelites were making. They are traveling into Jerusalem, and the disciples think to really celebrate the Passover, but Jesus knows what's going to transpire on this holy of holy weeks, if you will. And so we're going to pick up this morning, we're going to look at the, the sort of Palm Su- uh, Sunday text, and then we'll back out a little bit and look at something that happened a little bit earlier in that day. So we're going to flip to Matthew chapter 21. Before we do that and read these verses, um, let's take a moment, let's just pray. Let's just ask that God teaches our hearts this morning and instructs us and reveals something brand new to us. Um, so let's pray. Lord, I love to talk about you. I just, I love talking about you, Jesus. I love the fact that, God, you have given your entire life so that we might know you, so we might be redeemed. And Father, this week is, it's an incredible week. Father, you have have given us a perfect picture of your redemptive love and plan through the life of Jesus Christ. And Father, these are not habitual worship Sundays. These are life-transforming encounters with Jesus. So Father, I pray that you would instruct us through your word this morning in a way that's new and fresh. In these verses that we may have heard dozens and dozens of times, that you would make them come alive to us in a new way. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask God to speak to you this morning. Wherever you are, whatever you're dealing with, whatever you're sitting in, just ask God to speak to you this morning. Pray for someone beside you or in front of you. Just pray that God would move in them. Just be in the habit of praying for other people and just just pray that God would move. God, we ask in all things that you would be glorified and exalted. And the Father, we don't take these verses lightly. We never take scripture lightly. It is your very spoken truth. And so God, penetrate our hearts with it. Turn our lives upside down. And let us have an authentic encounter with Jesus this morning. We ask this in your holy and perfect name. Amen. So I'm going to read you some very familiar verses that sort of mark this Sunday for us. And so... And then I'll, I'll back out and we'll do something a little different. But I want you to hear them again because they, they just, it's such an incredible, incredible story. <clears throat> Let's start in verse 1 of chapter 21, book of Matthew. As they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethpage, they being Jesus and the disciples and this crowd of people as we'll learn in a minute. Came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt beside her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed, and they brought the donkey and her colt and placed cloaks on them. And Jesus sat on them, and a very large crowd spread cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. These are very familiar words if you've been to church at all in your life on these kind of special days, right? All people that are uh, maybe even not churchgoers show up on, on Palm Sunday or on Easter and we hear these words. And the really significant things that are happening here, I mean, Jesus is, they, and his disciples are heading in to celebrate the Passover feast into a madhouse that was Jerusalem. And as they're approaching, Jesus looks at two of his disciples and he says, I want you to go ahead to the little village of Bethany, which is not too far from the dr- road from Jericho to Jerusalem, right there on that road. And I want you to go there and you're going to find a donkey and you're going to find that donkey's baby and I want you to bring him to me. And Matthew reminds us that Jesus did this because the prophet Zechariah kind of foretold this event happening some hundreds and hundreds of years ago. That the Messiah, the chosen one, would come riding into Jerusalem, the daughter of Zion, also another name for Jerusalem, on the back of a baby donkey. And so the disciples do just as Jesus said, and they bring the donkey to him and they place cloaks on him. And as Jesus rides into town... Right, People take their cloaks off and they begin to lay them in the road and they, they cut branches and they lay them down. These are very significant things that are happening because these are signs of royal homage because when a conquering hero came riding into town on the back of a stallion, people would land, lay palm branches down as signs of peace. They'd lay their cloaks down as signs of honor. And Jerusalem was abuzz with this person of Jesus. They knew that Jesus was out in the countryside doing miraculous things, doing things that that either only a prophet or or God could do. And people knew that in this day of history something significant was going to happen. Here comes Jesus with this massive crowd of people riding in on the back of a donkey. And so people start chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Basically saying, save now. It's a Hebrew word that translates to save us or save now. And they're laying down their, their stuff and their branches and their cloaks saying, save us. Because see, Israel was under Roman rule. Although they were allowed to semi-govern themselves, they weren't their own nation, they weren't their own people. The Romans occupied them and they were waiting for a Messiah, the chosen one of God, to come and redeem them. See, they were waiting for someone to come in the line of David, act like a king and overthrow the Romans and establish Israel as a political powerhouse again. And that's what they hoped for for Jesus. They knew that this Jesus was coming and he was the foretold Messiah. And so as a conquering hero would come in, they laid their branches and cloaks down and welcomed him. Except Jesus, the irony lost on on people then as it is much lost on us now, except Jesus didn't come riding in on the back of a stallion as a conquering hero. He came riding in on the back of a baby donkey. The people were waiting for a Messiah to come in and, and redeem their Life as a nation. But God had a different plan. Jesus comes riding in to redeem their life as a person. Redeem all of human history. I mean, these are the events that are unfolding. I mean, these are are amazing things. And people are chanting. And that same crowd that is chanting, Hosanna, save us, in five days, will start chanting, give us Barabbas. Crucify him. That same crowd of people that was saying, Savior, Messiah, Lord, Son of David, Hosanna is going to start chanting for the name of a murderer and have Jesus crucified. Because their expectations, well, they weren't met. 
we know those stories, we've heard those stories, and I don't want to spend too much time on that today. I just want you to understand what's happening, because these are incredibly, I mean, just radical times. But if we back up about eight hours earlier, something really significant happens that morning that I think defines the life of Christ, and really defines how we should live as followers of Christ. And I want you to take a look at it. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 29, 20, verse 29, just six verses before that first. Because Jesus and his disciples are in a town called Jericho. And Jericho is about 17 or 18 miles from Jerusalem. Jericho is 800 miles below sea level. Jerusalem is 25, or eight, excuse me, 800 feet below sea level. Jerusalem is about, uh, about 2,500 feet above sea level. And they built Jerusalem on a mountain because you can defend yourself better when you're on a mountain. And Jericho is way down here by the Jordan River. It was an 18-mile journey all the way uphill. People made it all the time. But Jesus and his disciples begin their morning in this town called Jericho. And they're going to begin to make this kind of trek up the mountains to Jerusalem for perhaps the most famous entry into Jerusalem of all time. And that morning, they woke up like any other morning, knowing that they were going to celebrate the Passover feast. I don't think they realized the events that were about to unfold in front of them. So let's take a look at Matthew chapter 20 and look at verse 29, and then let's unpack this event together. Because I think it gets lost in the fact that we focus on palm branches and cloaks, and rightly so. Here comes the triumphal, if you will, entry of Jesus. And we miss something that took place just a few short verses earlier. This is what Matthew records. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho on their way to Jerusalem, a large crowd followed him. And two blind men sitting by the side of the road, when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And the crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called to them, what do you want me to do for you, he asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them, touched their eyes, and immediately received their sight and followed him. So this is probably a story you've heard before. Jesus heals the blind man. But very seldom do we really put it in its proper place in chronological history. Because this is a really significant thing. Because here's what I want you to understand. Jesus knows everything. Jesus knows what's transpiring this week. Jesus knows that in a few short hours he's going to be welcomed in Jerusalem as a coming king. He knows that in a few short days he's going to be betrayed by one of his disciples. He's going to be abandoned by all of them, denied by one of his best friends. He knows he's going to be handed over, beaten, and killed. If there's any moment in the life of Jesus where you would expect him to be focusing on himself and on the kind of coming events and preparing himself for what he's going to have to endure, now would be the time. But they leave Jericho, and everywhere Jesus went, I've said this a thousand times, huge crowds followed. Jesus never went anywhere by himself with the twelve. I mean, there were moments they were together, but wherever Jesus went, massive amount of people showed up because Jesus was doing incredible things and people wanted to see it. So this massive crowd was following Jesus from Jericho. They were going to walk the 18 miles all the way to Jerusalem with Jesus. And as they're leaving town, probably most likely right by the city gate, right as they're heading out of town, there were these two blind men, most likely beggars, because really as blind people, you were an outcast, you were a misfit, you were marginalized in society. There were no special schools, no ways to get a job. You sat on the side of the road and you begged people as they came in and out of town. It was your only option. 
And these blind men are sitting by the side of the road and they hear this crowd going by and they find out that it's Jesus. And they begin to cry out. They begin to actually say these words, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And they literally start screaming it out. And you got to imagine Jesus and the twelve walking with a crowd of a couple hundred and these two blind men, beggars, outcasts, the, just the dregs of society sitting on the side of the road saying, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And what they're, they're saying is, is more than just a proclamation. They're making a cry about who Jesus is because people believe that the Messiah was going to come from the line of David. See, these two blind beggars are making a messianic proclamation. They were saying, Lord, anointed one, holy one, chosen one, Messiah, because they had heard about this Jesus. Have mercy on us. And they are screaming it out. Remember, they can't see anything. They just hear this mass of people. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And the crowds, says, Matthew says the crowds rebuke them. That word rebuke is not just about going over to somebody and saying, hey man, listen, we're kind of on a big deal mission here, so you keep it down a little bit, I'll promise I'll throw you a couple of coins on our way back through. Rebuking is, hey, shut your mouth. When you rebuke someone, you tell them to absolutely be quiet, quit speaking, you correct them, and you do it sternly. The word rebuke is a powerful word. It's what Jesus does to Peter when he says, get behind me, Satan. You remember that? Jesus rebukes him. This crowd looks at these two blind misfits, these outcasts, and they say, be quiet, shut your mouths. Maybe for a lot of reasons, but the ones that are on the top of my head really are, well, really because, I mean, this messianic proclamation, they didn't need to hear that. Right? Maybe they didn't want everyone to know, or maybe people didn't believe it. You know? or, or maybe they knew that they were on this sort of kind of important journey to Jerusalem, and like people often thought Jesus had a lot better and more important things to do than mess with a couple of blind guys or cripples or beggars or whatever. Maybe Jesus, in all of his sort of important task headed to the Passover feast, had more important things to do than, than mess with these guys. People always felt like Jesus had more important stuff to do. Remember the disciples and the little children came running to Jesus. They stopped the kids and they were like, hey, don't bother him. And Jesus looks at him and says, what are you doing? Let the little children come to me for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. But nonetheless, the crowd, they rebuke these guys. They're like, hey, keep your mouths closed. But I love it because what the blind guys do is they heard the crowd and then they just sort of shout it all louder. I mean, what do they care, Right? They're a couple of blind guys that no one pays any attention to, so they just start screaming at the top of their lungs. Matthew records that they shouted even louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Lord, Son of David, over and over and over and over again. And Jesus, walking in the middle of this crowd, hears them and he stops. And that entire crowd stops because Jesus is no longer moving. And he kind of looks over at them and he says this, what do you want me to do for you? Because they're saying, have mercy on us, have mercy on us. Jesus stops and he says, hey, what do you want me to do for you? And then in a moment, I think of absolute honesty, right? These two guys, and instead of saying, you know, bless us or throw us a few coins, in absolute honesty, these two men said, Lord, another kind of messianic claim, Lord, we want our sight. We want to see. Because seeing for these guys will change everything. And they just real honestly said, God, we want to see. It says that Jesus, my favorite part of this whole thing, Jesus has compassion on them. And he goes over, walks through this crowd to these blind, marginalized guys. 
and he touches their eyes. He had compassion on them, and he touched their eyes, and they were healed. You know, the compassion of God overwhelms me. We've talked about this before back when we talked about Jonah, but there's a big difference in the mercy of God and the compassion of God. God's mercy is simply this. When God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, that's God's mercy. The fact that you and I are full of sin and garbage and we deserve to go to hell, yet God through Jesus Christ redeems our sin, that is God's mercy. That we do not get what our sins deserve because of Jesus Christ. God's mercy. God's compassion, while while similar, is actually different. Compassion is seeing the hurt or the plight in someone else's life and having a desire to relieve it. So God is merciful, certainly merciful when he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. But God's compassion means that God's heart breaks when our heart breaks. That when Jesus looked at these two blind men, he had compassion, meaning his heart broke for them. He knew what they had walked through, that their life, what their lives had looked like. The way they had been outcast and thrown away. And Jesus had a deep desire to relieve their pain. And I find this really remarkable because... In a time in the life where we would give, a G, we'd give Jesus a pass, I mean, look, after all, you're getting ready to be, be welcomed by a crowd in, a, in an amazing parade, and five days later, that same crowd is going to call for your death. Your closest band of guys, the 12 guys that you have spent every waking hour with for three years, one of them will sell you out, and then all of them will run away, and then your very closest friend, while you're standing in earshot, will deny you three times. You will be abandoned, beaten, crucified. I mean, in a moment in the life of Jesus where we would just say, we would totally get it if you walk by. He doesn't because he's Jesus. He stops in the middle of this chaos of what's going to unfold. And he spends an incredible moment with two marginalized people. But not only does he have compassion on them, what does Jesus do? I love it when Jesus does this. I love it, I love it, I love it. He touches their eyes. We know he does the same thing with the the guy that's deaf and mute. Jesus spits and he makes a little mud and he touches the guy's tongue. You remember that? He looks at these blind guys and he touches their eyes. Probably for a couple of reasons. One, well, because they can't see. They don't know that he's standing there. They don't know what he's doing. Two, because their eyes are the source of their affliction. They're the source of why they're, why, they're be- why they're beggars. They're the source of why the, the world has thrown them away. The source of all their pain. I mean, Jesus could have sat there in the middle of this crowd and be like, hey, you can see. And they could have seen. He did it all the time. Jesus was, he didn't need to touch them, but he did. Walks through the crowd, walks over, and he touches their eyes. And he has compassion on them. I'm a selfish, selfish person. I don't know about you, maybe you're not, I am. In the middle of my crazy weeks, the busyness of my life, the struggles that I walk through, and I walk past people every day. And I justify it with all kinds of reasons and all kinds of things. But in the single most important week in all of Jesus' life, in a week where you think he'll be preparing his spirit to die for all of humanity, he stops and he touches the eyes on this Palm Sunday of two blind beggars. I was really struck by this as I was reading it, because we did go to Guatemala this past week, and we'll be telling you about that over the next few weeks, but we we really did did two things while we were there. We spent time at two orphanages. One was uh, an orphanage for kids that were court-ordered to go there, 
Uh, most of them were either sexually or physically abused. And the court ordered them, and this place was big and fancy. Not nice, but big and fancy. And um, they loved these kids. The two ladies that run it loved these kids, and they loved on them. And we did some construction, knocked down some walls, and, and played with the kids a little bit. The second place we went to was in a little different town, um, and it was, a, it was an orphanage for, street or, for basically street orphans, street kids. This pastor ran a church in this little town, and he also had a restaurant, and the church was growing, thriving. He's an awesome guy. And the, 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 uh, he went to the church and he said, look, we have a unique opportunity. We're growing. We have the money to do one of two things. One, we can build a building, build a bigger building, move into it, and have a bigger church. Or two, we can build an orphanage and take care of street kids. So, of course, because they're awesome, they decided to build an orphanage. Every dollar of the proceeds of his restaurant goes to fund the orphanage. The kids get to go to the school, which is run by the church. But we spent a couple of days in this little orphanage for street kids, and it's just not fancy. It's one and a half rooms and a little kitchen, bunk beds everywhere. Infants all the way to 11 was the oldest kid that was there. Most of them were in the threes, fours, and they were dirty, dirty. They haven't bathed. They probably don't bathe very often. They had stuff leaking out of every hole in their body, and they were filthy. And I will tell you what, they, we, they were underfoot, they were in your pockets, they were up your shirt, they were everywhere. And all they wanted to do was be touched and held. So here we are trying to paint and do work and build walls and, you know, carry gravel and concrete. And you got kids crawling up your legs and all over you. All they wanted to do was someone to love on them. And we couldn't speak a lick of Spanish. Well, I mean, of course, I speak great Spanish. I know about seven words. We would take a, a wheelbow full of rocks and concrete down here to, to, to build a wall, and I'd come back, and there'd be six orphans in the wheelbarrow, right? I'm coming back with it like this. Not efficient, but all they wanted to do was be touched. So eventually, we just gave up working and just started hugging on kids. And I was struck because I was thinking about these little street kids that didn't have shoes, didn't have clothes that fit right, snot literally coming out of their noses, wiping it all over you, crawling with things and stuff and sick. And holding them and bouncing them and loving on them and watching them light up when you squeeze them. And I thought about how many people, and I thought about this, this pastor who loves these kids and how their church made a decision to build an orphanage instead of a building, which I find remarkable. And I thought about this passage that we're looking at today. And I thought about what, what does the life of Christ really look like? That on the one week when we could have said, Jesus, please just be selfish. Please just just. Get your life ready for the sacrifice that you're getting. I mean, you're going to be forsaken. You're going to die for my sin. Prepare your heart. I mean, remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He cries out to God, Lord, please take this cup from me. He sweats blood. I mean, this is the kind of passion. In a week where we would say, Jesus, do that, he stops and he, he puts his fingers in the middle of the affliction of these outcasts. I was so moved because I'm so selfish and I walk by people every single day at, at Starbucks, in the grocery store, on the street, wherever, and I don't even gaze into their life, much less take my fingers and put it in the middle of their life, their heart, their eyes, whatever. So selfish and yet Jesus in the, one of the most amazing weeks in his life kind of turns history upside down again, tells the crowd to be quiet and spends time with the outcast. 
What I want you to think about this week as we prepare to head into Easter and as we prepare to take this meal together and, and really continue in worship this morning is I want you to think about the, the entirety of the life of Jesus. Why Jesus really came. That in all of your sinfulness and all of your struggle, that Jesus came to put his fingers literally into the middle of your hurt. In the middle of what makes sense, God flips that over and says, yeah, you wanted a political king and I came to give you redemption for your life. In the middle of all that we want, God says, I know so much more for you. And this week as we go about our lives, I want you to, to ask God to show you how selfish you are. I want you to look closely at the life of Christ. And I want you to ask yourself, God, what kind of life are you calling me to? As a church, what kind of church are you calling us to be? We're getting ready to participate in perhaps the ultimate expression of God's amazing redemptive love. A meal that he shares with the disciples just some four days later. Just some four days later. But before we do that, what I want to show you is I want to show you a little clip that I think will put in perspective all that's transpired up until this point and prepare us to actually meet with the coming king as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus next Sunday. Let's take a look at this together and then prepare our hearts to meet with Jesus.